Welcome to Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. I'm your host, Laura, and I have an historical crime for you guys today. And this is one of the more bizarre crimes in the history of Denver that I've covered, and there have been a lot, like the Denver Spider-Man. My source for this story is a book called Wicked Denver by Sheila O'Hare and Alfie Dick. This story involves a cold-blooded axe murderer, a haunted house, a strange family with a patriarch who foretold the murder through palmistry, and a circus of bizarre suspects who were seemingly, um, or just literally, picked up off the streets solely because police thought they were kind of weird. So we're taken back to August 11th, 1912, around the Montclair area of Denver. This is an area that I used to live in, and within this neighborhood, there are many very old, well-established mansions, one being the Richtofen Mansion, which I do have an episode about. Um, But in 1912, though, this area was a bit of a distance from the city itself, and it was largely surrounded by land and farms and dirt roads, and there was basically nothing between it um, and a handful of established areas that were out in Aurora at that time. But on August 11th, 1912, 31-year-old, and so her first name is a name that I was not familiar with how to pronounce, S-I-G-N-E, but I did look it up, and it's Signe. So Signe Amelia Carlson um, was finishing up a music lesson in the Montclair neighborhood, and at around 8 p.m., she began her trek home to the large house that she shared with her parents off of Quebec Street. And by all accounts, Signia was a very talented musician. She had over 30 students, and she taught piano and cornet, and she was a singer who played occasional performances around town. But at any rate, she began walking to the 4th Avenue streetcar line, uh, because once upon a time, as I've mentioned before, Denver had a rather elaborate and successful streetcar line. Um, A source described in this book claims that the precise location of this um, was around East Alameda and Forest Avenue back then, and the entire area was basically just poorly lit farmland in between large country homes, um, small pockets of communities out there, but there was really nothing urban about that entire area. And so she's walking towards this area where she would catch this streetcar, and she was savagely attacked with an axe. And she did not go down without a fight. Sources claim that she was quite physically fit, and she fought like hell. She managed to stab her attacker with her hat pin. The broken off stub of it was still found in her hand when she was discovered. But as you can assume, she did not survive. She received several blows to the head from the axe. Um, And police, as well as the coroner, believed that she was sexually assaulted. There really wasn't much of a test kit for that back then, but the lower half of her body was mutilated with a knife. And um, it says that this happened after she died, but one of her stockings was shoved into her mouth. And it makes you wonder why the attacker would have done that if not to quiet her as he mutilated her, meaning that she wasn't dead yet, unfortunately. Her broken watch was located about 100 feet up the road, and it was broken at the time of 8.15 p.m. and had a bloody fingerprint on it. Sheet music was scattered all over the scene. There was a pair of broken eyeglasses on the ground, as well as a bloodstained handkerchief. And no axe or other weapon was found, and her body wasn't discovered until 9 a.m. when a local farmer went to round up his cows. So there's no indication that her parents put out any kind of a missing persons call when she didn't show up the previous night. 
but naturally police went to notify them of what happened and her family was quite the scene. Her parents had fallen out in 1891 and divorced and continued to live on the same property without speaking to each other. Signia and her mother and two brothers lived in the main house and her father, Sven, occupied a shack on the property for some two decades up to that point. There were some off comments that her father could have been the attacker just because of how odd he was. He was incredibly devoted to palmistry and quickly asserted to police that he had predicted that Signia would meet an early and violent death because she had an island on her lifeline. Friends and other family claimed her father was prone to depression and oddities and that her parents separated because her father was cruel to his wife and children. One of Signe's students claimed that she mentioned her father was dead to her, but didn't elaborate further on that. Um, But one line made police even more suspicious. He said, and I quote here, her life was good, but her death will do more good. It was her duty to go and she went. Eventually, the father was eliminated and determined to just kind of be an old crank. And there's going to be a lot of those in this story. So police went on to try to locate more suspects and locate they did. So they thought maybe a, you know, a lover could be involved. But friends and family assured police that Signe lived for her mother and her work and that she didn't have any involvement with men. So they started to consider the scene where she was found and she was presumably attacked where the watch was found and then pulled 100 feet towards the direction of the abandoned house in the area called the Burns House, which was supposedly haunted. But in addition to being haunted, it could have served as a really great vagrant hideout um, with a really great vantage point to see Signe coming down the road. Um, Her family then remembered that Signe claimed that she thought she may have been followed the past couple of nights, but that none of them had thought much of it. A dairyman's daughter, 11-year-old Olga Kaiser, came forward with eyewitness testimony. She claimed that at 6 p.m. on the evening of the murder, she met a man on the road near the Burns house. She described him as around 30 years old, in a light gray suit and straw hat with sallow, thin face and dark eyes. And he said to Olga, I want to talk to you. What block is this? And she was on horseback, and she said that the man's manner frightened her. And she told him that she didn't know and she rode off. And when she was at a safe distance, she uh, looked back at him and said that he looked incredibly mad and angry. And um, he walked off towards the Burns house and that's the last that she saw of him. So the police sort of, I guess, kept this in mind, but they went and searched for more potential suspects. And there's nothing in um, in this book about the police going to actually check out the inside of that Burns house, but I don't know if they did that or not. Um, Apparently, a separate man found the watch that was up the road, and he had suspicious stains on his clothes, so he was held, but they determined that the stains were not blood, and they let him go. The next suspect was John Featherstone, 45 years old. He was a one-eyed black man who was arrested on August 14th, and he worked as a pitman for a brick company about a half mile from the crime scene. The foreman had discovered a bloodstained axe near the brick kilns, and this axe belonged to Featherstone. He had a partial alibi and was at church that evening, and after a lot of coverage in the media that likely ruined this guy's life, they determined that the axe could not have been used in the crime, and he was eliminated as a suspect. 
On the same day he was eliminated, another suspect was identified, and he was only described as William the Apostle. Around 70 years old, he was picked up in Colorado Springs on August 14th because he was screaming curses at a group of children. In his satchel, he had a bloodstained handkerchief and shirt, a staff that could be used as a bludgeon, and was in Denver on the night of the murder. And they knew that he was in Denver because he made quite a scene. He had been wandering the streets, ranting that barren women were abominations accursed by God, and that he, William the Apostle, had been sent to destroy them. He apparently had knocked on doors and said that he was a man of God, and one... Um, I guess gullible woman, let him in to eat dinner, and he sat at the table and ranted about sexual matters in front of her kids, and she noted that his staff had this brass pipe end to it, and she was too terrified to toss him out, so they kind of let this raving lunatic eat in their home and scream at their children until he finally left. Police also received a letter saying, when the tree bears no fruit, it shall be cut down. Note the word cut, and let all parasites of man beware. The letter was signed, the sign of the axe, and then at the end said, you have to send this letter to nine friends or be cursed. And yes, I'm dead serious about that. That's what it said. Um, William the Apostle refused to give a handwriting sample, but other evidence led police to believe he wrote it. So there you have it, folks. He was the cursed chain letter started by William the Apostle in Denver. Who knows? Um, anyway, while still considering him, but unable to find any evidence actually linking him, him to the crime, police moved on to another suspect. This was Nick Adams, 59 years old, um, and a, quote, deaf and dumb hobo. He was arrested on August 18th in Denver, he had scratches on his face and was arrested after he was carving weird signs and messages into the wood on the porch of a business. Police determined that the carvings were just hobo tags, and he left them so his fellow hobos would see that the place was no good because they required you to work for food. But Nick Adams could not be placed in Montclair that night either, so they moved on. And they got um, a new suspect on that same day, August 18th, a man with an ID saying that he was R.C. Ray, 55 years old, committed suicide in a room at 1828 and a half Larimer Street. Apparently, he died of inhaling jet fumes, and how he did that in a room on Larimer Street, I do not know, but he had weak old bruises and marks on his chest, and he had small puncture wounds on his face. And remember, I had said Cigna used her hat pin as a weapon. So he also had a shirt that appeared to have had blood stains washed out of it and a piece of crumpled up sheet music in his coat. Cigna's parents could not say that it was their daughter's sheet music. And they brought in Olga, the girl who saw the man by the haunted house. And she said it was not that man. So apparently they kind of went off the idea that that man she saw was their guy. And they were going to have her identify who it was. The last major suspect that they found before kind of calling this a cold case um, was Milton Young, 44 years old, known to police as a sexual assailant and violent man, and he was arrested on August 19th. He was this really skinny guy um, with kind of large comical ears, bad teeth. Uh, at the time of Signe's murder, he had just gotten out of jail months prior after a four-year stint for assaulting young girls. Lovely. But police knew he was really only interested in children, and Olga could not identify him as the man that she saw. 
And these were the only suspects that made the news. Over three months, police caught and released some 25 suspects, but they lost steam rapidly. Back then, it was pretty unusual for a case to continue after months and months, and by then it would kind of be written off. So the case was shelved for two years until some even more strange circumstances came up. In 1914, John Freeze, 52 years old, a former insurance salesman, was charged with the murder of his common-law wife, Rachel. Um, Freeze was under court order at the time to stay away from her house, but on June 19, 1914, he broke a window, went in, and shot Rachel in front of their six-year-old son. He told the boy to go get the neighbors, and he went to an adjacent room and shot himself twice, but he did not die. His picture was put into the Rocky Mountain News for his trial, and guess who saw it? Olga saw it and claimed that John Freeze was the man she saw at the Burns house that day. Yes, so John Freeze was sentenced to life in prison for his wife's death after an insanity defense didn't work, and he claimed that a weight was lifted from his shoulders when she died. He denied being involved in the murder of Signe and spent the rest of his life in prison. And it doesn't say when he died, but as of 1930 um, in the census, he was still in prison. And that concludes all of the potential suspects for the murder of Signe. And the murder of Signe Carlson remains a mystery and is probably one of the weirdest cold blood murders of of Denver's history that I've yet located and I've covered quite a lot on here but most of them are jilted lovers and stuff I mean just a woman being so brutally um attacked and mutilated out in the open is is quite quite a thing to read um so that's the murder of Signe Carlson and I'm going to have just a couple of photos of a couple of suspects and of Signe Carlson although it's not a very good photo up on uh, Instagram at Colored Red Podcast, and be sure to check out my Patreon page. And if you donate just one dollar per month, you will get a card and sticker from me. So until next time, everyone. Mm-hmm.